0: came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and he had a, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Good morning again. It is... uh So good to be together after what feels like such a long time. Um, We are in a season of epiphany, Uh, you know, because the banners are up. That's your cue. Um, For those of you who don't know, we we are a church who follows the church calendar, which which means that in a sense, we put our rhythm as a church around the life of Christ. And so we've just come out of a season of of Advent, which was preparation for Christ. And uh, and of course, then had Christmas, the birth of Christ. We're now in epiphany, which was the life and the ministry of Christ and we'll then head into Lent, which is the death of Christ, Easter, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. So that's what the, the church calendar looks like. And we're right now in the midst of Epiphany. We've actually been in there for a couple of weeks, we just haven't been together for a couple of weeks. So, um, one of the other things that's significant uh, first of all, Epiphany is a season about light. Uh, Which is why um, one of the reasons why we still have our our, our lights on in the back. It's not because we're tacky people who just don't take down their Christmas decorations, just so you know. Um, But epiphany is about light. It's about capturing the, the depth of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Or when John talks about the light is coming into the world. That's what happened when Christ was born. And as he lived, his light shone before men. And the amazing thing about that is that it doesn't just stop there with Christ came and he was light. It actually continues when he says, and you are the light of the world. That's that's in some ways one of the most amazing things about Christianity is that it doesn't end with the prophet. It doesn't end with the teaching. It actually is just the beginning of something amazing, powerful, and beautiful that manifests itself through us. We are the light of the world. Him working through us. And so that's one of the reasons why we're going to be spending some time during Epiphany doing a series on life on mission. Now, we, we've talked about life on mission for a while. We've actually used different terms. We talked for a while about personal mission. And then we are like, well, we don't love that term. It captures some things we don't love. And, and so we've settled on, the, on what we're calling life on mission. And we want to focus these next several weeks intentionally talking about what does that mean? What does that look like? And what are its implications? But, but let, let, me, let me do a little bit better of an explanation. Life on mission, what does that mean? Uh, we want to say it this way, that life on mission is the gospel in action. It's the manifestation of the magnitude and the reality of what God has done in us, showing itself through us to the world. It's the gospel in action. It's not just action. Anyone can do action. It's the gospel in action but a little bit more of a comprehensive definition is probably this. What is life on mission? It's living out of my renewed identity in Christ. I listen to God and respond to his calls and leading, stewarding how he's gifted and prepared me and where he's placed me and spending myself for the redemptive good of my family, neighbor, church, and world. That's what we mean by Life on Mission. We're going to be coming back to this every single week as we walk through this series. But that's what we mean, and you you can think about it, reflect on it. The implications are relatively deep and significant. But before we jump into, okay, what is the why, and what is the how, and what is the where of Life on Mission for you, Uh, we want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about what it looks like to think of the road ahead and the pitfalls, the hazards, the challenges that are going to be true for you as we talk about this. One of the things that I know is that every time we start talking about what it means to do, to follow, to obey, it triggers all kinds of things in us. And and several of those are hazardous, dangerous, they're pitfalls and barriers to what it means to live alive in Christ. And so one of the things we want to kind of do over the course of this particular sermon is to, to function kind of like Waze does. I mean, you guys are Waze fans, I mean, how can we, how did we do life without Waze? Waze is is an application that tells you how to go somewhere, but it's way more than that. First of all, you get to be friends with lots of people who are also going places. How awesome is that? Because that's what you should be doing while you're driving. But secondly, (laughs) it points out the perils. It tells you there's a speed trap up here which for some people is really helpful. I'm not saying for me, I'm just saying it's really helpful. Or, or there's congestion for people who hate traffic and find it to be one of the most sanctifying opportunities in my very life. So it points to, to potholes and cars that are parked on the side of the highway. What it does, it doesn't just get you from point A to point B. It says, as you're going from point A to point B, I wanna guide you through all the things that are probably gonna show up on the road as you go to your destination, as you head on your way. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about barriers. We're going to talk about pitfalls of living life on mission. So what are they? What are some of these pitfalls, these barriers of a life on mission? I had Sarah read... um, the, uh, the the all all of chapter ten in Luke is pretty much about mission in general. But but we read the the, the uh, parable of the um, of the good Samaritan, which I think other than the parable of the prodigal son, is probably the most famous of all the parables. Everyone knows it. People who've never been to church are like, oh yeah, you're like a good Samaritan. It's it's famous. Everyone knows it. And and I'm assuming you would think, well, that's fitting. We're talking about mission, like best story ever about a dude who was on mission. Like we should all be like the Good Samaritan. Let's pray and walk, right? I mean, like that's the natural thing. And maybe I'm curious and wondering what you thought when Sarah started reading. If you're like, Good Samaritan, man, I've heard 75 sermons on the Good Samaritan. Give us some new material, Matt. So what I did is I just added something on the end that changes everything. But the reason I did is not just by happenstance. It's fascinating as you take how Luke, lay, Luke lays out chapter 10 and you realize something, that Jesus begins by being asked a question, right, by, by this scribe who's trying to prove himself. This is a, a teacher of the law, like the dude knows the scriptures better than anyone. And he comes and he's testing Jesus, which Jesus, as he always is, a bit ninja-like, he says, what do you think? And he responds. Well, one of the things that happens is that he declares the Shema, the, the, the ultimate reality of of, uh, of the law what is the great commandment he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength to love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus is like gold star for you and um, so, so so this parable is really the outcome of the next question which is okay well then but who's who's my neighbor and everything that follows is really an answer to so what does it mean and look like to love my neighbor As myself, or so it would seem, right? That's the natural outflow of that question. Everything, that whole story, it follows. And so you have answer, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And this is what loving your neighbor looks like. And then you head and immediately following that conversation, it says that Jesus went into this village and there's this woman, her name's Martha, and she just welcomes Jesus and she starts serving him. It's apparently serving him a lot. Not totally sure what that means, but either she wasn't prepared, her house wasn't clean enough or whatever, but she's working hard. And what Jesus ends up doing is he ends up putting these two things together, and we, we realize is she's doing what looks like life on mission. right? She's hospitable, she's serving, she's sacrificing, apparently. And something amazing happens. Jesus goes, "Don't miss it. There's something else." There's 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 a a, a one thing, a, a most significant thing that I don't want you to miss out on, and that is that you should love the Lord your God. So, yes, you must serve and love your neighbor, and you must love the Lord your God. It's like it's a bookend. In, in Hebrew, they call it like a it's an A B B A. It's like the, the, it's it fits right in the middle, and we're like, okay, so I understand what this means. Wait, do I understand what this means? And that's some of what we want to talk about this morning: is not missing the reality of what God is teaching us, both about what it means to maintain the first things first and to live on mission as we love our neighbor as ourself. So, I'm gonna look at barriers. We're gonna start with the first one. Uh, and again, this is pretty vivid imagery that Jesus gives us. I'm gonna bounce both between the, the parable and the scene at Mary and Martha's house. Uh, the first barrier is, uh, is fear. And I have several subcategories to this, and this should probably not be new to you. What's probably going to be true as I walk through these different ones, is you're gonna go like, yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah, no, that's me. Oh, yeah, that happens sometimes. Or in the weeks to come, as we start talking through things, you'll be like, "I am afraid." Or as you start meeting with your community group and 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 working through what it looks like to discover what life on mission for you looks like, you'll find yourself going, "Man, I am afraid." But fear, and 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 really, I think the the most obvious moment where this shows up in the in the passage is when the man has been taken, has been beaten, has been left half dead, and as these uh, Levites and priests walk by, it says they pass by him. There's this sense about when we look at our life on mission of what it would look like for us to expend ourselves, to spend ourselves for Christ, there's this fear of like, I don't know. I, I'm going to need to go around this because, because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it will cost me more than I have to give. You ever felt that? You ever struggled with that? You see opportunities, you hear things from up here that say, hey, what would it look like for you to participate in this? And you're like, I don't know. You hear something from a friend, a coworker. I don't know, I don't know. It's going to cost more than I have physically. It's going to cost more emotionally, maybe even financially. It's going to be challenging relationally. Life on mission will cost you. A life lived on mission will always cost. If it doesn't cost anything, it probably isn't love. It probably isn't love. And the more precious the thing, th- the more worthy the object, oftentimes the more costly the price. You know how I know? It costs 200, between two hundred thirty-five and $245,000 to raise a child. Those of you who are pregnant, it's too late. <laughs> Those of you who aren't yet, you just might wanna think about a 401k instead. You know, I'm just saying. 240 per child. That's a lot of money, but but the price is worth the object, right? The price is worth the object. By the way, it's about two fifty if they lose their retainers a couple of times. But um, <laughs> I'm not saying it's happened. Just saying it could. But the object is precious, and so the price is precious and costly. You can hear what Mary, um, sorry, what Martha says. She says, "Lord, do you not care that my sister?" left me to do this, and she adds, alone? Do you not care? You can hear her accusation of Jesus. Don't you care about this? Don't you care about me? Don't you understand that that this is going to cost me way more than I can handle, way more than I can do, and then I'll be all alone. It's all up to me. I can't do it. Loved ones, I want to remind you that we don't have a cruel taskmaster. We have a father. We have one who desires not only does he know your frame, but he desires to lead you out of his perfect wisdom for what he has for you. And he has bountiful supply. He has everything that you need. What happens oftentimes in us when we say, I, I don't know that I have enough. It's gonna cost me more than I can deal with, more than I can spend, more than I have energy for. It's a it's it's a it's a mentality, a spirituality of scarcity. It's the assumption, I don't have enough, Lord. I don't think I have enough, and, and I don't think you have enough for me. And uh, a quote that I read a, a few a couple months ago has been it stuck with me. It was actually on my, on my wall for a while. It says, the Lord God provides everything he demands. David Benner said that. The Lord God provides everything he demands. Hudson Taylor earlier said it differently. He said, God's work done in God's ways will never lack God's supplies. You read any Hudson Taylor? That sounds just like him. Pretty straightforward. God's work, God's supplies, all's gonna be good. Ready? Go. I like to think of it this way The Lord requires nothing that He does not provide. Let me say that to you. The Lord is going to require nothing of you that He is not going to supply you with. So when you find yourself struggling with your faith and saying, I don't, this is more than I can handle, this is more than I think I should step, step into, it's gonna cost me more than I'm made for. If the Lord is calling you, he will supply. He promises. That doesn't mean it won't be easy. It would be easy. It doesn't mean it won't be costly. But he supplies everything. Second Peter says, his divine power has given us everything for life and godliness. As in, everything we're going to need for every moment of the things that he's called us into. It's that straightforward. It's that simple. It's actually, it should be, that peaceful like, oh, okay. We're afraid. We're fearful of, uh, of, of not being successful, of not being able to have the kind of impact with the thing that seems to matter so much as it should. I had a a pastor friend of mine. He was a a college pastor. And uh, he had this great idea of trying to get all his college students involved in in doing a Habitat for Humanity house. And uh, beyond that, because that's just what, you know, I mean, you know, non-Christians can do, Habitats for Humanity. So he's like, we're going to also, like, love this single mom and her teen daughter. And we're going to get to know them. And we're going to support them long term or whatever. And so there's this great, beautiful story. And he pitches it to a bunch of people. And people give money. People come down and hammer stuff on the house. and I mean, it's just like this really great story story, right? And like the moment the keys get handed over, like it all falls apart. The whole relationship collapses. She doesn't want to have anything to do with anyone at the church anymore, certainly not with, with them as pastors, and, and she doesn't want to have anything to do. They, she, she won't let her daughter be able to connect with some of the other teen girls that she had been connected with. She like literally shuts the doors. It felt like they felt played. They felt taken advantage of. The story was bad, and you know when you stand up sit up in front of a bunch of people and you're like, here's this great story of this thing we're going to do and aren't you excited? And pff, it doesn't work. And for those of you who've been involved in relationships with people and in investing in environments, it happens. It happens more than we think. It happens more than we'd want it to. We can believe that if there's no triumph in it, then God is not in it. And so we go for a sure thing. Not the thing that God invites us into. So here's a question. Have you ever considered that God may want you to be a part of a failure? (laughs) I mean, right? I mean, I know we're Americans and all. And like that's against our DNA somehow. But like, have you ever considered the fact that God may want you to be a part of a failure? He may want you to spend yourself on something that won't work out. But that could be some of the very thing that God is calling your life on mission to look like. Just something to consider. If you read your Bible, you'll find some people who experienced some of that, just to be clear. The other thing we're afraid of is, um, is discomfort and rejection. And we're going to talk more about that later. But uh, one, of the, one of the best ways to think about that is is this. Uh, you know, Jews hated Samaritans, right? And that's one of the potent realities of this particular um, of this particular parables but by the way samaritans hated jews so it's not like oh it's just a one-way street they, they were treated poorly they were called dogs and so you know what if someone calls you a dog you don't tend to like them a whole lot either and so there's this the animosity between the two and so for this samaritan to reach out to a jew and to bring him into a jewish context he didn't go north up to samaria he came south through jericho from jerusalem to jericho so he's in judea like it's not going to look good for him he's actually probably going to potentially be suspicious. People are going to be suspicious of him. He's going to look suspicious. It's potentially going to cost him. And not only that, but someone who was caught by robbers or taken advantage of, potentially he's traveling when he shouldn't be traveling. He's not wise. Maybe God is punishing him. This is natural theological understanding at the time within Palestine. And you're associating yourself with this guy? He, he, he's set up for rejection from both Jew and Samaritan, from his own and from those who look on. Life on mission is fearful because it can cost you relationships and it can put you around people that are not like you. And so it's uncomfortable. And so we find ourselves afraid and staying out. And lastly is the idea if it doesn't uh, if if I get it wrong. And I think this is um this is particularly potent amongst the I'll call the 35 and under crowd of like there's this thing that I'm supposed to do, and if I miss it, if I don't seize it, if I don't take advantage of it, then I've squandered my life, or I've missed the opportunity, or I've disappointed God. The idea that I I could get it wrong, and and I just want to remind you of a couple things. One, you can only discover what God reveals. And God wants to reveal himself to you in his time. Moses held, took care of sheep on the side of a mountain for 40 years. And then one day it was time and God revealed himself. And he told Moses, this is what you're going to go do. Two years before that, Moses was probably like some of you going like, is my life about this? So wait upon the Lord. It's his job to reveal what you will discover. And so ask him, one of the things we want to provide for you, we're working on right now and we'll be offering to you guys is is a discovery tool, a, a guide to help you process internally with your close friends and family as well as with your community or community group some of what God has done, how he's prepared you, how he's made you to ask questions of yourself and to help other people ask questions of you that you may have greater clarity, giving the opportunity for God to reveal to you what he's going to or is calling you into the things he is calling you into. So there's fear, barrier, fear. And then there's the barrier of, um, of singularity. And and I think this is, this is super common, um, especially in church or nonprofit contexts. It's the idea that, um, that there's this, that there's just this one thing that that there's this one thing I'm supposed to be doing, or I'm supposed to be made for or whatever. And, and it's kind of like, you know, the, uh, She's the one, or he's the one. I'm just looking for the perfect mate. It's like they, they don't exist. You're gonna marry him, you're gonna think they're it, and they're not it. Just take some time. You'll find out. It's not. No one's perfect. It's there's not the one thing. Uh, one of the things that I have never seen in this parable before, and it it shocked me. And maybe maybe you've always seen this, but it said, and the next day, so he comes to the inn with the with, this, with the uh, the man caught the man who's. Um, Injured and uh, keeps him at the end and it says, The next day he leaves. I mean, is it, okay, he leaves. <laughs> like, think about it. Like, he had other stuff to do. He, he was on his way somewhere, right? Now he says, Hey, listen, here's some money and, and I'll, I'll be back. But he leaves. I don't know what it is about like, how we've like mystified the idea of the Good Samaritan, but he had other parts of his life to tend to. He potentially had other areas of mission, other areas of family, other areas of involvement that, that God had called him to, that God was leading him in, and this had become a part of his purpose, part of the mission that God had for him. There's very few people, very few people, who have both the blessing and the privilege Uh, Of spending most of their hours, most of their time focused on their particular arena or arenas of mission. I'm going to pick on Michelle Rickett for a second. I didn't ask you permission, so we'll go here. But Michelle, if you cut Michelle open, she bleeds girls. Mike was just talking about this. Their restoration, their rescue, their discipleship, their transformation, their preparation, their development, their protection. Like you talk to Michelle, and after after eight words, she'll be like... I really care about girls. I actually won't say it quite like that way, but it's really what's going to come out if you spend time with her. If you're, a part, it's some of the very clear things that God has made very clear to her part of her life and her heart. And guess what? She's the president of. She is safe. So she spends most of her time engaged in the life ministry, processes, volunteers, recruiting, financial drives, speaking around. She is safe in this very particular, very important arena. Of life on mission. But you know what? Michelle is also like a mom to grown kids that I know she tries to still coach, right, Hope? And tries to give insight to and in perspective. She's married to Daniel, and if none of you know Daniel, you know that's like could be a full-time job in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> She's got grandkids who come over that she has to clean up afterwards. She's a citizen. She's part of a community here. We want to come up with the idea that we can put mission in a box that we can check off. A singularity that says, oh, I know, now I know I'm living on mission. And that's not what it looks like. That's not the reality of it. And, and so when we find ourselves listening to other people trying to say, what's, what's my thing? It's not find your thing. Though God will reveal things to you and for you to do, to discover and to walk in. Which means that you have to continually listen to what God is telling you. You have to be listening to him, and then you get to respond to him. You listen to him, and then you respond to him, and then you walk, and then you walk, and then you listen to him, and you respond to him, which incidentally means that if you're saying yes to certain things, you should probably say no to others. Believing, by the way, that by saying no, you're opening the opportunity for someone else to be listening to God because he wants them to be a part of these things. Barrier of singularity. I think um, as far as pitfalls go, uh, I think the the most common pitfall, in my opinion, when it comes to life on mission is, is comparison. And this is true in so many other contexts. It's just beautifully true when it comes to what it means and looks like to live on mission. And and the apostle Paul takes the reality of living alive to Christ and breaks it into two broken barrier pitfall kind of expressions. He does so in Galatians chapter five, verse 25 and 26. He says, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. So if we live alive to the reality of what God has done in us, connected to that reality, listening to God, and we walk that out, if we live live by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit, he says, warning, let us not become conceited. You know what conceited means? I looked it up because I want to make sure I had it right. Excessively proud of oneself. Now, again, none of you have ever been excessively proud of yourself, I'm sure. But he's saying, be, be careful. I warn you, don't be conceited. And here's the two ways it's going to manifest itself. You're going to be either provoking one another, which, which basically means that you're going to be, you've actualized your conceit. You're exceptionally proud of yourself, and you're going to be provoking other people because you are that awesome. Or you're going to be envying one another, which means you haven't actualized the thing that you wish you could be proud of, which, by the way, still Pride. Just because you don't have it, but you wish you had it. So if you had it, you would then boast about it. That's just pride. It just hasn't happened yet. Does that make sense? So those of you who are like, I know I'm terrible. I'm no, but it's like, no, no, no. You're just waiting for the thing that will make you proud. It's fine. It's fine. We're all sinners. It's good. But, but so just, just to be clear, so there's, there's the two environments or the two arenas. There's provoking. There's the, the boasting. There's the pride. And then, and then there's the envying, the longing for what hasn't happened yet. And so there's these two directions of comparison. I want to look at the first first, the provoking one another. And you can see it like, (laughs) thank you, Martha, because she helps us see it so clearly. And when she looks at Jesus and says, Martha was distracted with much serving, much serving. And she went to him and said, Lord, did you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? (laughs) And again, listen, like she's telling Jesus this. You know, the one who like spoke her into existence. Tell her then to help me. Tell her to help me. What I'm doing is the most important thing. Tell her to join me in my thing because it's the most important thing. Comparison, provoking one another, says, what I'm invested in is the most important thing, or these are the most important things, and others of you are are just not engaged in the real mission. I mean, not, not really. I mean, you're trying and all, but not really. It's, and, and the thing is, is, you all know it. You've all heard it. You've all experienced it. It's one of those things, again, this is the funny thing about pride. It's something you, you know, see in others, never see in the mirror. Um, but you've all experienced this with friends, family members, people who say things like, I care about people being saved. How can you not see that that's the most important thing? And how can that not be the most important thing to you? Don't you care about people knowing Jesus? Or, you know, well, I I care about sex trafficking. Don't you care about sex trafficking? Don't you care about the reality of what's unfolding for these boys and girls around the world? Well, you know, I, I actually care about equal and good education for all, especially for people who don't have equal access to it. Don't you care about equal education for all? The opportunity to develop and prosper? Well. I care about marriages, them them being restored, them being healed, them being strengthened. Don't you care about marriages? Don't you understand that the marriage is the center of the family? How can you not care about marriages? I, I care about people knowing God's word and being grown and changed in the faith. Don't you want people to grow in their faith? Don't you want them to know God's word? If they don't know God's word, nothing else will yield from it. How can you not care about people knowing God's word? So, if I Was that person in front of you? I understand we don't want to be friends anymore. That's fine. But you know what it feels like, right? You've tasted it. You've experienced someone talking about the things that God's doing in them, and they're saying, This is the thing. I mean, do you have a Facebook account? Right? The most important thing is real Christians care about this. How can you not? the great thing is that no one escapes this when I was in seminary um, this is something that's you know like the the pastor world uh, there's there's like a pecking order in, in in ministry and people in seminary so what you do is you end up sitting around dinner table or, or around the cafeteria and um, you come to realize that there are certain people that are they're that super Christians and uh, and then there's others so so the pecking order goes something like this there's the people the guys or the girls that are that are heading to um, to like uncharted territories, to to people who've never been reached, unreached people in the middle of the jungle, and they're going there with a machete and a Bible and nothing else. I mean, they're those people, you know? And then, and then you have, like, the next tier. You have people that are, that are more of, like, the secret agent that are heading into, like, a Muslim territory where, where people are, are people that are against the gospel and are trying to fight against the church. Like, those guys are the next tier down. No machete, but still pretty impressive. And then you got the folks that are willing to leave the comfort of America and, and, and the, 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 the culture and the context they grew up in, what they know and what they've gotten comfortable with. And they go to large cities around the world or, or to Europe because, you know, Europe's awesome. <laughs> And then you have, you know, like stateside. And you got like your urban church planners. Those guys that are going in there and there's no machete, but it's, boy, good luck. It's going to be tough. And then somewhere all the way at the bottom, you have the suburban church pastor. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but you can feel it around the table. I mean, don't you care about the unreached peoples? You're not willing to sacrifice for. So we do it to one another. We, we, we come to believe that what what God has called us to, what God has ignited our hearts behind, what He's gifted us in, must be the most important thing. I get to why in a little bit later. Envy. We we have the side of saying I've got it going on and you don't, and then we have the reverse side. We have, as I said, the person who says, you know what. I mean, what I'm interested in, involved in, or have like the smallest amount of time to not even be a part of is so lame. It's so uninteresting. No one ever asks about it. There's no prayer requests for it. It's just, it's dull and uninteresting. I'm, it's so much, I wish I could, what they're doing is so much more impressive. It clearly must matter so much more. And, and, and realistically, you're falling in one of those two camps this morning. And ironically, what's going to happen over the course of this series is I use particular examples. I'm curious about how you felt when I was talking about Michelle. Maybe you're finding yourself going, yeah, see, she's really loving Jesus. (laughs) Like, I'm trying to, like, get to know my neighbor, and I don't even like him. You know, like, that's that's all I got. My kids are running around. I'm just like, hey, that's all I got. You know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, Michelle loves Jesus. I'm, but loved ones. What God is calling you to is what he is, as you listen to him, what he is leading you in, what he is speaking to you as you respond to him. That's your stewardship. Now it is your stewardship. You must listen. And when you hear, you must respond. That's unequivocal. The gospel demands it. But it will be yours. One of the things I want to to read to you is uh, how the Apostle Paul captures this, how it functions in the church, and I actually believe this is how it functions more broadly. So if you're one of those people that find yourself saying, I have nothing to offer, this is is God's word to you. 1 Corinthians 12 says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, well, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, and listen, as he chooses, as he chooses, that is really good news for you. He will choose. You get to listen, receive, and respond. Real briefly, the next, uh, the next pitfall is, uh, is, is the idea of, of, of a narrow mind, and I actually think it's more of a narrow heart. Um, it, it says this. It's two sides of this of one coin. It says, "My life on mission is only to do things I'm passionate and gifted gifted in. My life on mission is only to do the things I'm passionate about or gifted at. It's a demand to have God do what I'm interested in, passionate in, and to call me into those things. This is the uh, when the when the scribe asks Jesus the question, "Who is my neighbor?" You understand what he's doing there, right? He's trying to—he's trying to minimize. He's trying to narrow what it looks like for him to please God, to fulfill the law. He's trying to say, "How narrow can I make it?" So, who, who's my neighbor? People t- ten-mile radius? Only Jews? Like, what's what's the line? People who love God? Nice people? Like, what's 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 the line? What can I what can I squeeze this into? Which is why I think. And Jesus' answer is, is brilliant. I mean, his, actually, his question at the end of the parable is brilliant, right? I mean, you, you see how he switched it? Which proved to be a neighbor is his question, right? Which of the three proved to be a neighbor? What was the question of the, of the scribe? What was his question? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor, right? Who do I look out on and I'm supposed to be on mission to? What does Jesus answer? Well, what, is my answer? what does he ask him to respond which one of these was a neighbor? Which one of these lived and acted in a way that actually was neighborly, was one who loves others as themselves? That's actually the most significant question. It's not so much who's the guy on the road that you're supposed to be called to or not called to, it's who are you? And, and I find it ironic, I, I don't know if the, the words that he responds are inspired so much as I think they're telling, is he says, the one who showed him mercy which there's all kinds of other stuff about that, about not calling him a Samaritan, but the one who showed him mercy. And I, I, all I thought about was, he didn't say the one who was naturally merciful, the one who was particularly good at being merciful, the one who was powerful at mercy. So my invitation to you is you must listen and respond And oftentimes, it's going to lead you straight into things that God has equipped you for, prepared you in. Oftentimes, it's going to involve things that you're gifted at, things that you're going to be able to have major impact on the the kingdom for, whether to individuals or to organizations. But oftentimes, it'll also be uncomfortable places, things that are not natural to you, not natural spheres. It won't be in your wheelhouse. You can't demand of God. He chooses The flip side of that is the other idea the idea that my life on mission is only to do things that I'm not passionate about, that I'm really bad at or poor at, and that are particularly or exclusively uncomfortable. That's the, uh, I'll call it like the martyr or the ascetic kind of complex. I mean, if it's not miserable work, then I'm not really carrying my cross. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it has to be bad, it has to be painful. That's what That's what religion is, right? It's why you you crawl to Mecca on your knees. Right? You 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 bleed because look how painful it is for me to earn the right to be received by God. It's not the gospel. So, if you're if you're terrible at being with people who are hurting or, you know, or, or, or are struggling, if you're one of those people that are just like, they're there, please stop crying, you know, like if you're that person, which is not Jay, by the way, but if you're that person, please don't sign up to go to the hospital for people. Like, it's not, first of all, it's not kind to you, it's really not kind to the other people who are experiencing and receiving you. This is, right, that, that's not how you, that's not where you go first, Should you be willing to go? Absolutely, if your neighbor's in the hospital, I'd go. But it's not just misery that makes it righteous or good or true. But the most most significant piece, and it's really maybe the header over all things, the number one pitfall is the sense that mission leads to a misplaced identity. See, to do in order to matter instead of knowing that I matter and therefore to do. I do in order to know that I'm valued instead of knowing that I am valued and therefore doing. I do in order to be seen instead of knowing that I'm seen and therefore being able to do. I do in order to be loved instead of knowing that I'm already loved and therefore I'm free to do. You see, when we misplace our identity, we find ourselves outside of the very picture, which is exactly why Jesus says to Martha, which, by the way, really kind words in Aramaic or Hebrew when you say the name back to back, Martha, Martha. That's not like, Martha, Martha. It's not, it's actually a tear, it's endearment. It's like, Martha, Martha, Martha you are working so hard. He says, his words, his specific words are, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. The reason we know that he had to exhort her and was inviting her towards something more Is because her service was no longer to the king. You understand? She wasn't serving Jesus anymore. She was serving herself. And when your service, your mission, your ministry, your engagement with people, as God calls you, becomes your identity, you become proud or you become envious. That's the first way you know you are. Is when someone does a better job than you or gets more praise for it, you're angry, resentful, and bitter. Or you find yourself always talking about the stuff you're doing instead of being curious about what other people, God's doing in other people's lives. I think Billy Graham's the one who said this. I didn't double check. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, You know you're truly a servant when people treat you like one and it doesn't undo you. You know you're a servant when someone treats you like it and it doesn't undo you because of who you're serving. Because you're free, because your identity is the first place you rest. It's from the place of your identity that you go on mission. And so we must always come back there. We must always begin from the cross. We must always begin for what is true about us. Which is why just a little bit earlier in in Luke chapter 10 verse 20, Jesus has sent out his 72 disciples and they go out and they're like, like Jedi's, you know, they're like healing people and like people are casting out demons and they come back and they are like, I mean, they're like an eagle's nest service. You know what I mean? They're like super excited. <laughs> that was very exciting. Um, and Jesus is like, man, I saw Satan fall like lightning, which I think is just one of the coolest quotes in the Bible. And then he says this, he says, but do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Be careful. Don't rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, which is miraculous, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You start there and everything will be fine. You miss this and you have a nightmare ahead of you for you and probably most of the people around you. It must be grounded in your identity in him. I think the words that are most haunting to me in this whole parable are the words seeking to justify himself. Loved ones, we are going to be tempted. The more exciting, the more significant, the more um, palpable, the more enjoyable it is as we step into a life on mission, we're going to be so tempted to have it justify us. I want to be justified when I don't know that I've already been justified. When the verdict is already settled on me, well then, I'm good. But if the verdict is not settled, and I must prove something, and I must be something, well, then I will seek to justify myself. And there is nothing better in the Christian world than service. To do, to do much, to do much for God. As we head to the table, I need to remind you of something. You do understand that you... You can't be the good Samaritan, right? You you understand that? You can't be the good Samaritan. Jesus is the good Samaritan. It's not you. If you find yourselves laboring, trying, yearning, pulling towards becoming the good Samaritan, indelibly you're going to find yourself trying to justify yourself, envying, boasting, self-protecting, self-aggrandizing. Now you see, he's the one who came to the place where we, wa- we, we were, where we are. He's the one who saw us and had compassion on us. He's the one who moved toward us, who bound our wounds. By his wounds, we are healed. He brought us home and he took care of us. And then when he left, he gave us the Holy Spirit to transform us and he will come back. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of the ultimate good Samaritan for you. And when that comes all the way down to the center, it becomes not only our great joy and our great peace, but it becomes our great power to do unimaginable things in the name of Christ. Because he's the one doing them in us. One of the things that we do when we take communion is we take the body and blood of Christ in us. One of the pictures of this is that it's his life that is lived through you, right? You died. It's his life now in you, which is really good news. You're not walking out these doors. You're not walking into your office, to your school, to your relationships, to your family. Jesus is walking in. And that's what we remember when we come and take these elements. So let me pray and I'm invite you to come and receive in that very way. Lord, you tell us that if we lose our life, we will find it. And that is cosmically true in that you chose to lose your life, that we would be found. And so, Lord, I pray, having been found by you and made well in you, would you now send us, release us, challenge us, point us, speak to us, reveal to us the ways in which you want The life of Christ manifested in the spheres and environments of our life. It must come from you. Give us ears to hear. Let us receive from you now the great gift of our Lord Jesus Christ through his body and blood. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. You get to receive Christ that you may live Christ. So, brothers and sisters, Children of God, come forward and receive the grace of Christ through his body and blood.